Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. I am really excited about this conversation today. John Petricelli is joining us. He's an experimental social psychologist who researches, writes, and speaks about the science of communication and decision-making. He's a professor of psychology at Wake Forest University, teaching social psychology and judgment and decision-making. He's also the author of, get a load of this title, The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bullshit. His research examines the causes and consequences of bullshit and bullshitting in the way of better understanding and improving bullshit detection and disposal. So welcome to the show, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, uh, when I saw the title of your book, I knew I had to interview you. Um, I had a nickname in college. People literally called me No Shit Russ. And, oh. <laughs> and one of the reasons was, is I, you know, maybe it's just from being from downtown Chicago and having this very like, tell it like it is persona, which is uh, really who I am. But they were like, yeah, you don't take any shit. You don't like give out any shit. You don't put up with it, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. So they just started calling me no shit. They're like, Hey, what's up? No shit. And it was just really funny. Um, and then I realized in later what an asset that was. And, um, but I want to talk to you about, this is very interesting on how I, I think a lot of people need to get a little bit more proficient at detecting bullshit, but let's just start with, you know, you talked about it in a Ted talk a little bit, but let's talk about what is bullshit and then what is lying and what's the difference. Sure. That's, that's a common misunderstanding. Um, A lot of times people use the term bullshit in place of lying and vice versa, and they are very different. Um, So the liar is someone who actually cares about the truth. Um, they, they don't believe what it is that they say. Um, and it's important to understand and pay attention to the truth if you want to tell a successful lie. Right? If, if, if your goal is to detract someone from, um, from some aspect of the truth, then attention to the truth is paramount in, in lying. But the bullshitter doesn't really care about the truth. Um, they're not paying attention to it. They don't have any regard for it at all. Um, and in fact, a bullshitter may say something just by accident um, or just by chance that may be correct. Um, but in that case, they wouldn't even know it because they're not paying attention to truth, um, established knowledge, or what we call genuine evidence. Um, so, the the social reaction as well to to bullshit in, is very different from that of lying. Um, so when someone bullshits, they're basically communicating something without any regard for truth, genuine evidence, or established knowledge. And their goals may be to uh, exaggerate maybe their knowledge, their competence, or their skills, um, or to impress people, uh, influence them, persuade them. Or simply confuse or hide the fact that they don't know what it is they're talking about. And that kind of behavior tends to get a social pass of acceptance um, that we just kind of shrug it off. We think it doesn't have any harm. um, And we don't feel as though if there are any unwanted effects that we're susceptible to them because we're such great bullshit detectors. Um, but research shows that we're we're actually not. um, And that the effect of bullshit can be just as serious, if not more serious, than lies. And it has incredible uh, negative consequences for our wallets, for our decisions, our uh, professional uh, career decisions, our interpersonal decisions, uh, and the daily decisions that, that we make. Um, and, and so that's why it's, it's, it can be dangerous. It's not dangerous in all cases, but it, it can be um, something that gets in the way of optimal decision-making. Now, if I tell you something and then later on you find out that it's a lie, then you know that that's false, right? But with, with bullshit, um, if, even if someone tells you, oh, I was just bullshitting you, it's possible that they're, it's still correct. So you'll still have to do some fact-checking and you'll have to do some work to find out whether or not that's true or false. 
And so that's another way in which it's it's different from lying. Um, we don't even talk about the two behaviors in the same way. Um, usually we might say, so, oh, we're just out here sitting on the porch bullshitting, you know, but right. but I've never heard anyone say, oh, we're sitting out here on the porch lying to one another. You know, <laughs> so so it's it's just a very different social reaction. There's there's anger and disdain in reaction to lying, but but usually kind of a social pass. We we just shrug it off like it's it's no big deal if someone if even when we know someone is bullshitting us. Why why is that, number one? And can you give us a a simple example of bullshit versus a lie and how this may play out in okay. scenarios. Yeah, sure. So, so the content can be the very same. So this is why it's so difficult to detect the difference. So what if I, if I told you, if I'm, try, I'm trying to sell you a car and I say, you know, the, the BMW Z3, it's a, it's a much better car than the Mazda Miata. They're, they're kind of similar in size, but the BMW is it's it's a better car and it's it's got better engineering and it's more efficient and it's a safer car. Okay. But if I know for a fact that there is not a significant difference between the two models, um, and I'm I'm telling you that, then then I'm lying to you. Um, but if I just want that to be true, or I wish it to be true, or I don't really care whether or not it's true or false, and I just want to sell you the car, then then it's bullshit. Uh, it may be correct. It may be wrong. So it's not the content that makes something a lie or bullshit. It's, it's one, the common um, sort of manner in which the conclusion is made from information, how it's produced, and the motivation behind it. Um, so in the in the lie, I'm trying to make you believe something that isn't true. In in the case of bullshit, I may have dozens of different uh, motives. I may just want to see what it feels like to say that and to see your reaction. Or maybe I know that you like cars, but I don't really know much about cars, and I'm just trying to connect with you on an interpersonal level. And so I talk about something that I don't really know what it is I'm talking about, or I might be trying to uh, kill awkward silence, or I might just be trying to impress you with my knowledge in some way, or, or maybe I know that you bought a Z3 BMW. Um, and I think the Mazda Miata is actually better, but now I want to avoid the pain and conflict that I might cause or the embarrassment I might cause if I, you know, if, if I think you bought the wrong car, you know, so, so there's, there's dozens of motives for this. And there's a paper that is still um, under review that, that I reviewed recently that looked at the cases of situations and reasons that people would bullshit in the workplace. And mm. what, they, what they found was over, I think they had over 500 participants and they just defined bullshit for people in the workplace. And they said, well, why would you engage in this behavior? And they found 36 different situations and reasons, um, unique, uh, that people will bullshit. <laughs> and, and what they found, too, with the dimensions were to uh, improve sta- their own status in some way. And then the other was to connect with others in, in some way. And bullshit comes in very handy in those ways. Um, so Give me an idea of some workplace bullshit. So a workplace bullshit would be... Um, there will be there will be no jobs lost um, in the coming months, even due to our merger and restructuring. Okay, so that could, that could be based on something that I wish to be true that I have no clue uh, what it is that I'm actually talking about. I just I just say it with no connection at all to genuine evidence, established knowledge, or truth. So it would be a lie if you knew that that was not true and you exactly. were lying with people and you said it anyway. Exactly. Exactly. But in the case of bullshit, you don't really know what it is. You're not paying attention. And there's certainly variations in it. There's a, It's a continuum. Sometimes we're a little bit interested in the truth and genuine evidence and established knowledge. And sometimes we're completely oblivious to it. We, we don't care at all. So it, there is a continuum aspect to it. Um, and this is something that we we've done in, in my research on looking at the consequences and the causes of bullshit is we, we ask people. So, you know, when you wrote that thought, cause you can give people any topic to write about just really anything. Um, 
automobiles or restaurants or or amusement parks any anything even even i one one case i created a fictitious disease and asked people what they thought about well how do you prevent it how do you treat it Uh, what's what's the likelihood that you can contract the disease and and they pretty much went to town no no problem all i all you have to do is to describe some some easy to imagine symptoms and they'll write about it as if it actually exists Right. So, but they couldn't possibly. When they were given the exercise, they didn't know if it was a real disease or not. Exactly. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. you you don't tell them that, and but but they can generate content quite easily, (laughs) and (laughs) um, but so we have them type a single thought per screen frame, and then we feed the thoughts back to them, and we say, when you wrote this particular thought, to what extent were you truly interested in genuine evidence or established knowledge? And they usually give, on average, they say. On a zero to ten scale, they usually say about a five or a six. Mm. Um, I think there's a little bit of self-deception there. I think the the, the score is probably much lower, um, and so we subtract that from ten to to get their BS score because it's the lack thereof, it's the lack of concern for truth and genuine evidence. So, so if they say a six, then we give them a a a, a score of four for that particular thought. And it turns out that across all of our studies. 35 to 40% of all content that people generate, they are readily willing to basically say that, okay, I've bullshitted my way through this. And, and that's quite a chunk. <laughs> that's quite a chunk of, of content that people are willingly ready to admit that they're bullshitting. Um, so how would, you, how would you discern in this situation? I'm just trying to think of uh, some scenarios. One would be, so let's say there's no empirical evidence for a belief that you have, okay, but you still have the belief. So for example, I mean, I'm, I'm not religious, but a lot of people, right. The objection would be like from an atheist or an agnostic person would be like, there's no evidence either way, or, you know what I mean? And so therefore I can't be convinced, but the person's like, yeah, but this is what I believe in what I'm preaching. I have faith in it. It's what I believe, Mm -hmm. even though it may not be coming, or they might think that there is evidence, Mm -hmm. even if it's personal evidence, you know, how do you, right. How would you discern that situation or deconstruct that? Well, I think in the case that you described, I I wouldn't categorize it as bullshit because you've you've kind of signaled that that you know this it's kind of like speculation. Um, yeah, I know there's not hardcore you know boots on the ground evidence supporting my claims and my my assertions. Um, so in that case, I think you're signaling that I do actually have some interest in regard for truth, established knowledge, and genuine evidence. I know I don't have any for this, but but I believe it anyway. You're you're kind of you're hedging it and you're signaling that you're qualifying it. And I think I that gotcha. that's fine. I mean, if if because you're saying you are interested, but if you signal to someone, I really don't care what the research suggests. Uh, I don't care what astrophysicists say about Pluto. Darn it, Pluto is a planet. You know, <laughs> and then now in that case, you don't you you're 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 still making you're now you're basically telling us that you're bullshitting and. Yes. Um, and so, but it can still have an effect, even when we know that it's bullshit, because we found in other studies that we've done in our research lab that you only need to be exposed to a bullshit statement one time for it to shape your memory for what and, and your belief about what is true. Because what we find is that people confuse familiarity of a statement or a claim or an assertion with truth. Um, and I used to think this was something you needed to hear something that was false, maybe 16 to 30 times, right? But you actually only need to be exposed to it one time to then later, you know, a week later, you hear it again. Oh, it feels more familiar. It's easier to mentally process. And then we often confuse that for truth. Um, and relative to lies. Now, if I said, well, um, Pluto's a planet, and then later on you find out, oh, I was lying to you that I actually know, and I know what the definition of a planet in our solar system is, and 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 it's like now you can tag it as false, right? <laughs> so, but in, unless you do the work in the case of bullshit that that people are usually unwilling to do, um, you'll be more likely to believe that that's true in the future. How did you get involved? in being interested in this topic where you just bullshit yeah. by a ton of people and got hurt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've, 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 I've argued that uh, my general interest 
and it um, does sort of derive from the fact that I I, I do um, come from a long long line of of bullshit artists and really <laughs> in my family. I mean, I I think everyone does actually. When when people when I tell people about what kind of research I do, they get excited. They tend to say, they tend to have these readily available examples of the greatest bullshit artist in the world. And they all seem to know like the same person. It's always their uncle Larry, or it's always, it's always Maurice on the second floor who works in marketing in their building or something like, and they have all of these examples um, of, of annoying forms of, of bullshit. So I think, I think generally we are constantly surrounded by maybe not so much bullshit artists, but but people who are willing to bullshit. And the the one important reason for that is there appears to be an implicit obligation and an implicit social obligation to have an opinion mm-hmm. about pretty much everything. <laughs> you know, and it's it's impossible, of course, to have a well-informed opinion about everything. And you know, since the emergence of the internet, obviously, I mean, what we are exposed to today through mainstream media, social media, internet, is that everything has expanded into so many other things. And to the extent that we still feel obligated to have an opinion about everything, it seems as though that there's just so many other things now that we have to have opinions about. In the past, we had to have opinions about maybe nuclear energy and or nuclear war and um, you know who to vote for, who when to vote, who can vote, you know when you know big social issues, capital punishment, things like that. But now we're still supposed to have attitudes and opinions about those things, right? But now we're also supposed to have opinions about whether or not Game of Thrones ended on time or whether or not people should be allowed to carry dogs in their purses or if Kim Kardashian should or shouldn't be famous and whether or not her sisters should be allowed to digitally modify their pictures on Instagram. You know, so it's, it's the things that we're just bombarded with today that people talk about and will eventually kind of turn to you and be interested in your opinion. <laughs> it's just expanded over the top. Um, and so the, to the extent that we continue to feel like we have to have an opinion just to sound interesting and to be a, a, a factor in our daily uh, discourse with others, it, it's just, um, I just think there's so many new avenues in which we're exposed to it. And um, it it's, doesn't stop until we start being more willing calling it. Uh, for what it is and and confronting it. I wonder where the space is for, I find this often, which is, let's say someone asks me a direct question about something. Um, oftentimes the subject matter requires all of the tangents and nuances that are, that you extract to maybe form an opinion, right? You know, like, it's not yes. just like, well, yes, I agree with this statistic, but then you're like, but you have to consider the way it rolls out. And then this could happen. And so in the grand scheme, if I right, that kind of critical thinking, which I think is really lacking, where mm-hmm. people will claim a statistic on something, not look at how the fallout or whatever could be from that. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Am I making sense here? Maybe you could elaborate on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the good uh, red flags that you can use to detect bullshit is when you hear blanket statements as if, you know, always or everyone, um, every time, you know, as in all cases, as if it's just uh, logic incarnate that, you know, things are the way they are every in every region of the world. You know, so that's very, very, very rarely the case. Um, we, in social psychology in my field, uh, one of the things that we're obsessed with is identifying important factors um, that per, that basically act like light switches, on or off switches that modify or what we call moderate effects. So if you know there's a relationship between variable A and B, uh, we never stop there. We want to know, well, what are, the, what are the boundaries of that relationship? When is it that you get a positive relationship 
between variable A and B? Are there cases where there's a negative relationship? Are there cases where there's no relationship at all? We, 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 we go through this um, from just every angle, identifying all of the factors, and it just makes the whole picture much, much more complex. That is usually the outcome. Things are very, never simple. They always become more and more complex. I tell my students in, in courses that I teach, you know, about 40% of what you're going to learn in this class is probably wrong. And we don't know it's wrong, but maybe, you know, five or 10 years from now, we'll, mm-hmm. know, we'll know that, well, it's, it's partly correct. And here are the conditions. These are the circumstances under which the, the claim and, and the conclusion is correct. And here's where it's wrong, or here's where it, you get the opposite. Um, and it just becomes more and more uh, esoteric, but uh, it's it's because we're paying attention to the complexity of the social phenomena that we study. And that's I, I've never actually seen a, cl- a case where it becomes simpler than we thought it was. It always becomes more complex. Um, so to the extent that people are not accounting for that and they're just making blanket statements like, oh, yes, this is the way it always is that's a sure sign that someone's probably bullshitting you because they haven't really thought through it and they haven't considered the readily available evidence that, that may exist to, that, that would otherwise support their claim. One of my favorite comedians is George Carlin. Oh, I love George Carlin. Yeah. And he's got a great <laughs> yeah, bit about yeah, bullshit, yeah. right? Where he's talking about yeah. people that are stupid or full of shit. And he's like, he's like, you thought you're talking to someone and you're like, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're okay. They're smart and fairly intelligent. I can't put my finger up. They're full, full of shit. Full of shit. Yes. Right. <laughs> give us whether it's your uncle or your family. Give us like a couple scenarios where you're like, oh my god, what a bullshitter. Well, gee, I mean, that's it's all over. Um, I, I think probably my the probably the most important examples would be those interpersonal examples. I think those are much more potent. You know, if 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 um, the Daily News. Um, has something to say that we agree with or we disagree with. You know, if Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow or um, any anyone that we might see on, we we may agree or disagree with something that they say. It doesn't. I don't think it really has a, the same effect on us as if we have, you know, maybe our friends, our colleagues, family, neighbors who are then saying the same thing. It tends to stick with us. Um, a, a, a little bit more. And I don't think that people are usually willing to kind of think through and consider in an unbiased way, all of the relevant evidence um, for or against a claim. Um, usually, I mean, there are motivational reasons why people uh, not only generate bullshit, but also endorse it. And and so certainly you know, someone close to us who is who is kind of spewing bullshit is, is going to have, I think, a bigger effect than, than someone that we don't talk with. You know, somebody who we are close to and we actually trust and communicate with on a daily basis would have a bigger infa- impact. So some, a colleague or a friend um, that would say any of the same things that we might hear either, you know, on a podcast or, 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 on the daily news or, or on the radio that, that um, we agree or disagree with uh, would have probably a bigger effect. How, how can we start to, you know, this is what I find. I, and again, maybe it's just, I, I don't consider myself a skeptic in general, but I think just uh, growing up in the city that I did with some of the hardships, it's like, I feel like I'm a good detector of bullshit. I have, I feel like I have a good mm-hmm. vibe where I, it's that George Carlin thing where I'm like, yeah, nah, I don't know. Some reason I think they're full of shit. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And, um, but yet I know a lot of people who I guess one would call gullible where they feel like, gosh, I really, you know, they, they're so trusting with people. Right. I mean, con men are like the ultimate mm-hmm. liar, bullshitter types uh, in general. I apologize for that plane flying by. Um, so, so how can we start to look, you know, if you feel like you're one of those people, like, ah, I'm always getting chumped, you know what I mean? Yes, or, yes. right. Like how can people start to sort of, I mean, I think a lot of it's that gut mm-hmm. vibe. Like we just, we have a feeling like we can't book our finger on, but that's enough, isn't mm-hmm. it sometimes? Yeah. I think there are, there are two primary reasons for why 
we often fall for bullshit. And that is when, when people explain why they are making a claim or an assertion or why they believe something, what they often offer by default is explanation. So these are reasons why they believe it, um, but doesn't get at something that verifies, demonstrates, or uh, confirms um, through a compelling set of facts or information um, that the claim or the assertion is in fact true. That's that's what we call genuine evidence. Okay, and evidence is used interchangeably with explanation. Uh, those are two very different things. Um, and so I think the general acceptance of explanation as if it is evidence often gets in the way and we confuse the two. But I think if we have a better handle on, on genuine evidence and how that's distinct from just my favorite pet reasons for why I believe something, uh, then I think we have a better chance at detecting. But, but the other reason why we often fall for bullshit is we, we fail to ask basic thinking questions, basic critical thinking questions that go unasked. And there's, there's three that I've, that I've found in my work that, that tend to work best. They're just they're very easy to remember, and they're, and they're pretty effective. Um, and the first question is, well, what? What is, is that you are saying? I hear you saying X, you know, the, or your claim is X. That that's really interesting. What? Well, can you tell me more about that? You know, um, when you when you show interest and you ask people to clarify their claims or or feed it back to them, they can hear themselves for the very first time. And what often happens is that clarification. This, the exercise of clarification acts as a great antidote for bullshit because people will tend to start to clean it up a little bit right away. You know, it doesn't. They'll, yeah, they'll go, like, oh, well, well, I mean, you know, I just, yeah, I'll start backtrack. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So they may make a blanket statement as if it's, um, it's ipso facto logic um, and it's actually not. And so they'll, they'll say, okay, well, yeah, well, that's not exactly what I meant. And, and so it's it's a wonderful tool just to ask, well, what is it exactly that you are saying? You know, what does that look like? Um, how does that work? Um, and that clarification will kick in, which is rare for people to do when they've just bullshitted. Because again, we don't often call people on their bullshit or even start taking the steps to give them the gift of doubt and the gift of critical thinking. We don't, we, we often miss the chance. We, we bypass the chance at, at having them do that by failing to ask for clarification. We just kind of take it and we say, Oh, well, they're probably bullshitting us. But, but the second question that we fail to ask is how, so I hear you saying X, well, how do you know that that is true? Right. You know, how did you come to that conclusion? What sort of, you know, information or evidence that, you know, led you to that conclusion? And that's a difficult question to answer as well. But what people typically ask at the second stage is they ask why. Well, why do you believe that? <laughs> you know, and when you ask why questions, you tend to get a very abstract, construal response that might be pretty heady or philosophical and value-laden. Um, and it doesn't get naturally at the 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 genuine evidence that might be readily available that they've remembered or that, or that they can muster. If you ask how that tends to get them to a more, what we call a more concrete construal response and, and you force them to start to, to provide evidence if they've got any. Um, and so if you can get through those two questions, the next, the third question is to, to ask is, well, have you considered any alternatives? Like L, I hear you saying X, but have you considered Z? Um, you know, have you, have, do you see the conflict there? Have you resolved um, any of these inconsistencies? Have you considered, what other kinds of things have you considered? And all three of these questions, they're really just designed to help you diagnose the communicator's genuine interest in truth, 
genuine evidence, and established knowledge. And after you have the answer to these, these questions, then you can make a more informed decision as to whether or not you are buying what it is they're selling. Right. And I guess this is, I mean, you know, if it's a situation where you're like, oh, forget challenging Uncle Larry, he's always bullshit. I don't care. That's one thing, right? Because you know you're not. But if you actually are starting to maybe agree or believe, that's really the time to go, well, hold on a minute. Let me ask more about this conclusion, right? Let me ask some more questions. And then also, too, in that response of the bullshit, or I guess you'll see the backtracking, which is very revealing, right? Some body language going on, some other things where you're like, ah, bullshit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think there, there's, there's certainly um, cases um, that you are going to detect BS better if you've got some knowledge that the communicator doesn't have, or you've got more expertise or more, you know, expert knowledge in a domain. Um, it's going to be very difficult for them to pass bullshit on you because, um, because we know also from research that if you put people in a situation where they're going to have to communicate with someone that they know has more knowledge, that bullshit scores go way down. Um, the example I've often given is, is with an auto mechanic. I am not going to bullshit an auto mechanic. I just don't know enough about cars. And they're going to know right away that I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm going to sound like, I'm going to sound like a fool, you know? So it's just the natural way. So if you could even cue, um, even if it's not true, <laughs> if you speak the language of the expert, you know, so, so bullshit can, can extinguish bullshit in some cases where if you present the social cues that you know more than the, than the bullshitter, then then that can signal to them that, okay, well, Elle knows she probably is going to be able to detect it. And it's not going to be so easy to get away with. And that's, that's another factor that we've identified in our research is when people feel they're in a situation that they can get away with it pretty easy, that, then the gloves are off and they're, and they're bullshitting away um, with, with, with no holds barred. You know, it's interesting. I've uh, so my first book is called The Paleothyroid Solution, and I dealt with a lot of uninformed doctors on this topic. Mm -hmm. And I found that whether it was lying or bullshit, I think it's probably more in the bullshit category. I would get a line of bullshit, mm -hmm. and I realized that it was because it was covering up their ignorance in a situation <laughs> because they had oh, yes. too much ego, right? So, so one example, and and nobody even needs to know anything about thyroid, anything for, to understand this. But I once asked a doctor, I was with a patient who didn't speak much English. She was a employee at our company and I decided to go with her to help her out at the time. And, um, the endocrinologist was just a terrible bedside manner. Anyway, I said, Hey, listen, can you please test this patient's X just, mm -hmm. it was called reverse T3. It's a test, but it doesn't really even matter. You don't need to know anything. And she said, we don't do that. That's old school. And I said, well, that's, that's, I said, well, that's kind of funny because I actually just got over a reverse T3 problem. So it's pretty new school to me. All I'm asking you is to just take a test. Can you just take the test? Mm -hmm. And then she goes, well, fine, but I don't know how to evaluate it. And my response oh. to her was, did you just patronize me for asking you about a test that you are now saying you know nothing mm -hmm. about? Yes. That is no different than me being like, John, do not go see the new Transformers movie. And you're like, why was it terrible? And I would be like, oh, no, I didn't see it. <laughs> like, what the hell? So I yeah. find I've, I got this a lot too from people like discounting and you know, and then they're in that position of power as an MD, right? And they're like, ah, we don't do that. That's bullshit. Or we only do that when you're in the ICU or whatever the, whatever the excuse was or the bullshit, but it was mm -hmm. often to hide that they really didn't know anything about it. And they were just too drenched in ego. Does that make sense? Yes, and that, that's quite scary um, because of of the expectations that we do have for healthcare professionals, you know, and physicians. I mean, we ex we do expect a lot, and they expect a lot of themselves, and they'll play that role um, over the top in in the sense that that they will communicate as though they know everything. And if you don't ask enough follow up follow up questions, I think you asked. You apparently asked enough follow-up questions to detect the bullshit. Um, if you don't ask enough follow-up questions, we'll never demand the quality of service from our healthcare professionals. It's been shown that that physicians, even in their own areas of specialty, 
often do not know how to interpret a simple negative or positive test result. Now, most lab technicians will tell you yep. that, they, that they can interpret it quite readily. And, and the sensitivity and specificity rates are often printed right on the labels of the tests. Okay. But, but to understand, well, what is the likelihood of, you know, this condition, illness or cancer, whatever it is that they're looking for, given a positive or negative test, I believe patients do deserve to know what a negative and positive test actually means. I mean, as much as we pay for, for, for medical care, but, but, but the reality is that if you ask and you challenge physicians that give you the test results and say, well, what are the chances that it is cancer? Is it 10%, 90%? I would want to know. <laughs> I mean, that's a big, that's a big difference, but even when it's that extreme, sometimes they have no clue. Well, um, and you know where it really comes from? It comes from like, especially like an endocrinologist, let's say specialized, mm-hmm. they're like, in their mind, it's like, how could I have spent 10 years, all this money, gone to Harvard and not know everything I was supposed to learn. It's almost an ignorance about their breadth of knowledge, right? Yes. Not, not not studying anything beyond or looking into new things or a patient's like, hey, this isn't working for me. And they're like, well, sorry, that's just the way it is. We'll have to put you on Prozac because this is obviously yes. your numbers are because they're not going, well, hold on a minute. You know, I've had a lot of these complaints. Is there something more, you know, and that's where mm-hmm the conversation with the doctor in my book came in where he was like, you know, gosh, you know, we used to geek out on this stuff in medical school. And then they mm-hmm. lost that mojo at some point or an endocrinologist where another doctor is requesting more specialized tests. Maybe the endocrinologist mm-hmm. doesn't even know what the, what it is, but they're like all up in arms and upset that another doctor is like, and and you're like, well, where's yes. the freaking patient here? Yes. And so that's a very specific where I'm obviously talking specifically about the health thing, mm-hmm. but I want to move on to another thing, which is, uh, confidence. So my second book is on confidence. And, you know, what I have noticed, and and again, maybe this is in a little bit of arena of bullshit, is you can never gauge someone's confidence by their confidence in their career or a hobby, let's say. Like you could own a huge law firm, be like up there speaking in front of Supreme Courts, whatever it is. That doesn't mean that you're not a people pleaser and lying sack or whatever in real life and can't have a conversation with your girlfriend, right? So I think sometimes we we misgauge so many outward, right, like uh, things or statements or declarations when they're done in a confident way. And we automatically assume like either this person is confident mm-hmm. or this or they're confident about this when, you know, then they get off the stage and they seem really confident, but they're not in real life. Now, yeah. I don't know that that makes them a bullshit or a liar as much as it just makes them not having the full confidence and self-esteem to really be truly confident. But, you know, does that any of that kind of resonate or make sense there? Well, I, I certainly think that that confidence is often confused for correctness. Yes, um, it, it's but it's not associated with. I mean, with the right. variation of confidence that people show. One of the interesting things we've known this for over twenty years now, and it, it's it's gotten a, quite a bit of attention. It's sometimes referred to as the Dunning Kruger effect, and it's this basic idea that that the competence that you need. Um, for any domain of behavior to be competent in something like the, the mental skills that you need to be competent in that are the very same mental skills that you need for recognizing your own and others competence. Okay. So um, what, what the interesting finding has been over and over and over again, which also applies to bullshit detection is that the people who are actually most confident in their ability to do anything, uh, including bullshit detection, are often the least competent. They're the, they're, the, they're the most clueless as to how good or bad they actually are in the domain of behavior. Mm. Um, and this is this has shown up on, in, in dozens of different uh, behaviors. What interesting. You a, false, a false sense of confidence almost too. It's almost like no different than that doctor being like, well, whatever, we don't do that. It's just ignoring their own lack of education or knowledge in that subject or their competence. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's been shown um, with certainly with, with medical issues, there was a study done a few years ago um, with um, a measurement of attitudes towards vaccines. 
mm-hmm. and and knowledge of autism because there is this yeah. belief, even though it's been debunked um, several times over with with extremely large samples, there is no connection between the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and and autism in children. There's no connection at all. It's been independently debunked. Andrew Wakefield's research was completely fraudulent. Uh, uh, Brian Deere showed, an investigative journalist showed on so many different levels that that there were just incredible problems with, with the science. However, the bullshit-based belief that there was this connection lived on. And so what, what happened- Well, hold on, you mentioned MMR, but then yeah. other doctors and studies would show, like, for example, even with the mm-hmm. current vaccines, and I'm vaccinated, I have mm-hmm. yeah, no problem saying that, um, there are always going to be risks with any vaccine, right? So sure, you could factor that in, but is that the mm-hmm. causation that you're going to lay to say that this causes that in general? And that, again, is that lack of nuance with critical mm-hmm. thinking, right? Like clearly there's people that got a vaccination and something mm-hmm. bad happened. And, but that's going to like happen no matter what the damn drug is, right? You know what I mean? It doesn't matter what, yes. what is out there. And so then people will leap to make that broader conclusion mm-hmm on both ends, right. Without mm-hmm. looking at like, okay, well, there's some cases, but the thing is, is like, there's 40,000, what car crashes a week or a year. And we don't, we all get into our cars every day too. Yes, yes, and so I yeah. think, I think sometimes those subjects are never black and white, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's the problem too, is that people want things to be black and white, don't they? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. They want it to be easy, but it's, it's, it's often complex and they're often unwilling to accept the complexity um, that they would need to admit to fully understand it. Um, just also, I mean, just to finish that the thought too on on that study that was done, that there was a strong relationship between the attitudes uh, towards vaccines and knowledge of of autism. It was the the people they showed that the people who were most against vaccines actually knew the least about autism. Um, so, so that, that tells you something I think in, important. Um, and, and also, I mean, obviously people often confuse the, the correlation or associations between variables as if there is a causal factor and, and, um, it's very easy to do that, but obviously one diagnostic test is that, that any potential cause has to come before the outcome, <laughs> you know, it has to come before the effect and, and in, when we attribute an outcome to a particular cause um, and ignore all potential things that came also came before that outcome, like you know basic uh, nutrition or other other well, exposure yeah, to, I mean, uh, to o- exposure to other things, you know, or you know, so what about so, like Ansel Keys back in the day who was like saturated fat causes heart disease, which we know it mm-hmm. doesn't, and there's so many factors involved as mm-hmm. to why that would or wouldn't. But what he did is he cherry picked a study which is what a lot of people do, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the people at the store, I've asked people who are buying like Beyond Meat and I'm like, hey, so are you a vegan? And they're like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, why? And then they give me the reasons. And I'm like, so what inspired you? It's always mm-hmm. a vegan propaganda film. And I could probably take down a million of the points that led them to get to buy that Beyond Burger that they were skewed in some way, mm-hmm. not looking at the larger picture, right? And so it's really interesting. I think people need to get a little bit more critical when they read some article and it says this is bad. And then you know, you then you look at the author of the article, and then you go, you go down a rabbit mm-hmm. hole and you're like, oh, okay, well, now I see why they said, you know, and so it's just interesting. We're so ready to take things just on the surface and not go in investigate deeper. Um, and I think that this is probably one of the, it's probably one of the better ways to get yourself out of believing a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and early I gave you, I gave you uh, just a quick technique when you're able to communicate with the potential bullshitter, when you're able to actually communicate with them, but, but there are, there's another set of quick questions that you could ask yourself um, when you're not in a position to communicate with the bullshitter. So the be- one of the best questions is to ask who, who is telling me or who am I getting this information from? What is, what is their credibility? What is their expertise uh, in, in this domain? And, and then back to how, well, how do they know that? How, how would they even possibly know that? What it is, I mean, some claims are so outlandish. Uh, I mean, talking about nutrition and, and medicine, I mean, some things are just, um, just unbelievable. They, they sound like they're, they're groundbreaking and, and uh, the new 
science it's cloaked in in that in those terms but often is 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 pretty flat um so how do they who how do they know and what what agenda might they have what are they trying right. to sell me you know so those base i mean those are basic critical thinking skills 101 and we often just bypass that those are good opportunities to to shield ourselves from things that ultimately have an effect on at least an implicit level um, they do have an effect on our judgments and decisions down the road what are some of the things that in this research as you went along investigating mm-hmm. bullshit what are some of the things that popped out to you that were the most fascinating that you're like huh i never i didn't think about that one or that's enlightening yeah one of the most interesting things i think i found was what what is being published um, in success or performance, especially in corporate business um, arenas. I mean, there are so much bullshit out there right now that it's, it, it sounds intuitive. It sounds like it should work, you know, and it's, it's pitched as the new, you know, again, groundbreaking uh, uh, information and it's all recycled stuff. And if you look at even just yep. the base, basic titles of, of books that are coming out like almost every day. I mean, you see a lot of contradictions. I mean, they, they seem equally compelling though, but, and none of them are tied to any, anything that resembles social science. It's just armchair quarterbacking and philosophy that, that sounds compelling. And if it sounds compelling and it, and it, and you can tell a story, you can rely on anecdotal data, which is, Yep. is not nearly uh, as useful and important as systematically collected data. And if you just count the hits and you ignore all of the misses of the claim and, and the assertion, then, then it's easy to pass it. I mean, there's, there's, there's books, um, you know, with titles like um, in search of excellence, you know, lessons from America's best run companies, but then there's an equally successful book called the myth of excellence, why great companies never try to be the best at anything and how, why they're the ones who are successful, right? Or, or charisma, the seven keys to developing magnetism that leads to success versus uh, leading quietly an unorthodox guy to doing, <laughs> right. to doing the right thing. I mean, the list go, I mean, the, right. Well, it's like, it's like open any health magazine too. And it's like one page is like low yeah. carb. And then the next page is like, here's a, a cupcake, <laughs> here's a cupcake ad. And then the next yeah. page is like, why in the next week it's a, why high carb diets? My, you're like, Oh my God, stop. No wonder everyone is frigging confused. Yes. And, yeah. and again, you know, all this stuff is also an N equals one, right? Like if it's true for you and you believe it and it's enriching your life, then great. There's no harm there. Um, but yeah, that is so funny. All of the contradictory titles and it's true. There's really not a lot of new information. It's just who you resonate with might be saying it or delivering it or what clicks with you that then helps you with your life. Um, I interviewed Mark Leary, PhD. I think he might even be from Wake Forest University. Oh yes. Yeah. Or he's Duke University. I I think he's, uh, yes. Yeah. 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 There's an interview in my, in my book, Confident as Fuck with him. And it was interesting. Some Mm -hmm. of the studies, you know, that they had done on confidence where, you know, they, have a guy who's like really shy and can't talk to people, but they had a bunch of girls sort of who unbeknownst mm-hmm. to the guy were kind of pawns, mm-hmm. I guess, mm-hmm. in this kind of study and, and just them like being interested in what he had to say or whatever it was just a light conversation, mm-hmm. just like increased his self-esteem and comp like to a you know new level and all of these different, just so interesting, these nuances what what are you working on now? I mean, are you still working on bullshitters or some other avenue that you're like really fascinated by right now that you're kind of you know researching or looking into? Well, I've been doing quite a bit of work on how BES can be used as a persuasive tactic, mm-hmm. um, and in comparison to the antithesis of bullshit, and that is evidence based reasoning and communication, um, and so. One of the interesting things that we found is that when you have strong arguments for um, a position on something, we, we often use in social psychology, we've used the idea of comprehensive exams as a requirement for graduation. And you know, students usually hate this idea, right? <laughs> but but if you give them strong arguments and you say, well, and this is happening right here at Wake Forest University, they'll they'll listen and they'll they will recognize the difference between strong and weak arguments. I mean, if you tell them, well, Duke University is doing it, it doesn't have any effect. But if you say, um, well, most students who come from uh, programs that have this kind of policy, they tend to um, 
they tend to earn, you know, fifteen thousand more dollars after two years of graduation in their salary. Well, that's a strong argument, and there and and that that moves right now. If you give people evidence based uh, cues that you are actually concerned and you're interested in the current research um, and the facts, you can use strong arguments. They'll recognize them, and it will always win over weak arguments. But if you cue to them. Oh well, I don't care what the research suggests, and I don't I don't care what the researchers say, and and I, you know this is a good idea, and and you signal to them that it's that it's bullshit. They stop thinking um, at a level where they don't even recognize the difference between strong and weak arguments, mm. and in and in some cases, weak arguments are just as effective as those strong arguments. Right. And the, and the interesting thing is that the bullshit arguments and the evidence-based arguments, they're the same. Okay. We just, we just changed the, the attitude of the communicator. And so what we find is that bullshit can weaken uh, strong arguments. So if you've got strong arguments, you shouldn't, you shouldn't appear as though that you don't care about the evidence uh, at all. You shouldn't appear as though you're, you're bullshitting. But interestingly, bullshit can improve the potency of, of weak arguments. So if you only have weak arguments, you should sound confident and know what, and like you know what you're talking about. And and it will have it will tend to have more influence than than weak arguments that are formed in the in in the evidence-based frames. So what we think is happening is that people tend to kind of shut down mentally when they say, oh, this person is bullshitting me, right? And in in fact, like, why should I think about the issue any more than the bullshitter has, you know? And in, in fact, if I'm going to counter argue against them, I really won't have to bring my A game because they're not even concerned about the, right. any evidence that may otherwise support their position. Um, so, so bullshit can be persuasive, especially when People don't really have strong arguments to begin with, um, but what's interesting is in comparison to lies, we've we've run, we've asked, well, how how persuasive is bullshit in comparison to lies? And so we've asked uh, study participants to tell us what their attitudes are about a a new uh, pizza. So we give them information, positive information about a gluten-free pizza, Chow's Pizza. And we tell them how great it is and how great it tastes and everything. And then we, we tell them afterwards, we say, well, there's a com- consumer protection agency. And they found out that Chow's Pizza marketing, they actually lied about a few of the things that they, they told us. Now, what we find is the attitudes are, are then more negative compared to the initial attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, now, 10 days later, when we measure the attitude again, there tends to be a rebound effect that, mm. that people forget the discounting cue, the lie mm. information faster than they forget the initial positive information. We call this the sleeper effect. So it, it, it rebounds. Now, the sleeper effect is actually more potent when the information is, is cued that it's bullshit. The very same things that we said, well, there were three lies. Uh, The Consumer Protection Agency said, well, uh, the Chow's Pizza, they don't even really know if this is true. They they didn't actually investigate whether or not people really love the pizza. So, you know, it's basically bullshit. So right away, there tends to be a, a, a drop in their attitudes, but not as extreme as if it's a lie. And then 10 days later, when we survey them again and say, hey, well, so what do you think about child's pizza, it comes back to the control level as if we never told them the false information or the, the lie or the bullshit. So, so in that sense, the sleeper effect for bullshit is actually stronger than, than the lie sleeper effect. Um, and this is kind of dangerous again, because, because that suggests that the impact on attitudes and opinions that is a result of bullshit is even more uh, insidious and more powerful than that of lies. So I wonder where this would come in and in, in closing up on this one, but you know, uh, and obviously there's many factors involved in con men, 
right? I always mm-hmm. talk about it in my book is it's like a it's a misuse of confidence, right? In some ways, you I mean you're trying to instill confidence in the person that they're going to believe mm-hmm. your lie, but they're also really great bullshitters, right? They know a lot about a lot of things, can kind of have conversations about a lot of stuff. Of course, um, I just I mean, that might just be like the ultimate in lying and bullshit coming together. I guess I mean it's that one. Yeah, so I I think people are actually much more likely to encounter your average uh, bullshitter um, and and be influenced negatively by that person than they are to find this, you know, bona fide bullshit artist. And they certainly are out there. But I I think the success of the bullshit artist is is in a lot of cases, their success is not due to some wizard-like persuasion skills. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just that they speak the language and and I've placed a lot of the blame on the receivers of that communication when yeah. they fail, when they fail to ask important questions, follow up questions, and even run basic um, plausibility tests. I mean, I, I once heard someone say that um, uh, a stock price decreased by 300%, right? Well, <laughs> if something decreased by a hundred percent, then it's zero. There's yeah, right. nothing can decrease by 300%, right? I mean, it doesn't pass a plausibility test. And, and one of the um, most famed, I think, bullshit artists and, and, and con men of all time, Bernie Madoff, yep. really didn't um, persuade people through bullshit or any persuasive skill much. Most, most of the investors in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme were over four. 4,800 of them, most of them never spoke with Bernie Madoff. They, they, they didn't meet him. Like they didn't do their research is what you're talking about. Like they didn't ask the questions directly. Absolutely. Like it's, that was on them. They just, right. Yes. And there were a number of investigative journalists and also Harry Markopoulos, who was, uh, was uh, on to Bernie Madoff very early, recognized within just, you know, 15 minutes that the numbers just didn't add up for the the most salient piece of Madoff's bullshit was that um, he he certainly lied as to what he was doing, but the explanations that he used to explain how he was being successful over eighteen years, every like month after month, outperforming the S and P one hundred and five hundred. His methods, which he described, were not even possible. Meaning right, if so, someone just asked the right critical questions of exactly. that, of, yes. right, then they would have been like, hold on a minute. Yeah. Yes. Markopoulos, what he asked were, were um, just basic ex, you know, thought experiments. He said, well, if I had um, used the same method that Madoff is claiming to have used, what would would happen and when he worked out the math and he actually tried some of the methods it just it it was not successful you cannot say that well i'm making market driven decisions all within the s and p 100 and then month to month outperform the s and p 100 for 18 years right and 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 notice that the s and p has that normal up and down fluctuation it looks like a you know, a bone saw, you know, that's, that's kind of, right. um, all, with all of the variation where, where if you plot Madoff's, um, success in his hedge funds, they're just always, always outperform. They're always increasing by like a one and a half, 2% every single month for 18 years. I mean, th- I mean, nobody has that kind of success, but he had also said to, to a lot of people that, well, it's, it's so difficult to, to get anything beyond the regulators to to cheat the system, you know, and he made people believe that where it was incredibly easy to cheat the system if you weren't playing by the rules. I mean, he wasn't right. even making, he was not making trades. There were no trade. All of the documentation was completely bogus, but all anyone really needed to do was to say, well, did he, did he really purchase 5,000 shares of GE on this date <laughs> for right. some reason or another, the SEC never actually looked carefully enough at it. And Mark Hobbles was just, I mean, in his book, he describes almost going crazy, not understanding why no one could see this coming. I think, yeah, the title of his book is um, no one would listen, <laughs> but, yeah. but he had, he had, it was, it was 
a decade, over a decade before Madoff was, was, um, or, you know, arrested and convicted before anyone was, was believing what Markopoulos was, was saying. So fascinating stuff. Um, all right. So in wrapping up, uh, where can we get your book, the life-changing science of detecting bullshit? Everywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, everywhere. <laughs> Great. I'll put the link in the show notes, of sure. course, for everyone to get that book. And then how can we learn more about you and your work other than the book? Yeah, uh, probably the easiest way to find me is uh, Twitter, um, John V. Petro, and, and Wake Forest Psychology. You can find me there easily. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. I look forward to uh, the audience getting a copy of this book and uh, accepting less bullshit and uh, possibly stop generating some bullshit. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you, Ella. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. And everyone else, we'll see you next week. Primal Blueprint listeners don't compromise on pantry classics. Whether you're going keto, paleo, in the middle of a whole 30-month, or adding to your Primal-approved arsenal, Primal Kitchen has a full range of mayo, ketchup, dressings, and oils that add flavor and variety to any meal without ever compromising on ingredient quality. From avocado oil-based mayos bursting with flavors like Kiki Chipotle Lime, Creamy Classic, Zesty Garlic Aioli, or Savory Pesto, to unsweetened ketchups and organic mustards, there's a condiment to complement every taste bud. Be sure to stock up on Primal Kitchen avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and new balsamic vinegar of Modena to add ease and great flavor to any dish, whether you're grilling, baking, broiling, braising, sautéing, or stir-frying. Primal Blueprint listeners can get their favorites 20% off when they use the code PRIMALBLUEPRINT at checkout.